0: Hey, ice-coffeteers. I put the interview at the start of this episode so you won't have to wade through a load of shit about loads of shit if you've got a sensitive disposition. I don't enjoy most of my bodily functions, but I am conscientious about them, and I know full well that the particular challenges Antarctica poses to anyone who doesn't want to smell worse than they absolutely need to warrant some attention. But my advice for more genteel listeners is to listen to the bit with photographer Sam Edmonds and call it quits. I met Sam during my second contract working the Zodiacs around the Antarctic Peninsula and I put the hard word on him for accommodation at short notice when my trip to Sydney nearly went to custard. Sam came through for me and I'm grateful to have workmates who can tolerate accommodating a large marine ecologist at short notice and Sam did so with grace and excellent food. Meeting and spending time in company with Sam's grandmother Barbara was a privilege and a pleasure to boot. Here's the man himself. Just <laughs> odd to have my sock on the table. Uh, I'm talking to my colleague Sam Edmonds, a photographer who works on the ships with me. Uh, very interesting history. Sam, can you tell the listeners how it came to be that you are an award-winning Antarctic photographer?
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, <clears throat> I guess... Uh how the word antarctica comes to fit in there very much kind of came about by uh by chance really um yeah i mean i grew up by the ocean um i I guess i've always been intrigued by and and interested in uh in, in in the ocean um never particularly interested in in antarctica aware of it um but i guess it wasn't until sort of my my university days i was studying photography um and for whatever reason, uh, at the time, became aware of um, some sort of conservation issues that I uh, became a little interested in, and um, one group in particular um, seemed to be addressing several of the issues that I was most sort of concerned by, um, Sea Shepherd Conservation Society, and uh, So as much as I could kind of squeeze in around my classes at the time, I was uh, volunteering for them, which basically in in Brisbane looked like uh, manning market stalls on on the weekends. Um, But basically when it came to to graduation time, I had sort of got my foot in the door enough with them that they sort of knew what I was doing, knew I was sort of handy with a camera, um, and they needed someone to to operate a camera um, on one of their flagship vessels, uh, the Steve-Owen, for uh, one of their anti-whaling campaigns in the Southern Ocean. Um, so I literally sort of graduated one day and, um, and jumped on the Steve-Owen three or four days later <laughs> uh, after hurriedly driving my car from, from Brisbane to Sydney with all my belongings in it and leaving it in my parents' driveway. Um, and so I guess at the time um, didn't know all too much about, uh, about Antarctica, uh, and just had a little bit of a sense of adventure, I guess, and, and was concerned about th- this issue, so I was happy to sort of volunteer my time. Um, uh, but yeah, it very much sort of marked the beginning of an ongoing interest in, in that, that continent. Uh, ever since, I've just been finding various ways of getting myself back down there and, and taking my, my camera back down there, I guess.
0: How many seasons have you sailed with the, the Steve Irwin now?
1: Uh, I did two Southern Ocean campaigns on, on the Steve Irwin, um, and that the end of the second one basically sort of coincided with um, uh, the end of those sorts of campaigns for, for various reasons. Um, there are still a couple of years where, where the whaling fleet um, were exploiting uh, the Southern Ocean without Sea Shepherd's presence, but um, basically since... Sea Shepherd have uh, withdrawn from there. I've started doing a little more work on some of their other vessels as well. So on the Bob Barker in uh, in Gabon, um, and uh, some other sort of campaigns in, in Scandinavia and uh, around the place.
0: And it was that experience in the Southern Ocean that led to the work in the Antarctic tourism industry, where we where we first met.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, Yeah, I guess it was, um, you know, everyone could sort of see on the horizon um, that this issue of of whaling in the Southern Ocean was hopefully going to come to a a close. Um, And we're all kind of, uh, yeah, tentatively uh, celebrating that, I guess. Um, And then, but I did sort of have this realisation of, uh, you know, I'm going to need to find another way to to get to Antarctica (laughs) uh, every year. And uh, one of my professors from uh, the Queensland College of Art, Uh, I'd sort of caught wind of of him spending a little bit of his time uh, between semesters in the Antarctic somehow, and basically I just sent him an email sort of uh, looking for a bit of information, (laughs) and uh, he was just very happy to sort of put me me straight in touch with with Quark. Um, and it did take a little bit of time. Um, I mean, Quark recognized kind of straight off the bat the experience that I had in the Antarctic and um, also the experience I had with, with the camera. Um, but it still took a good sort of uh, 12 to 18 months, I think, of basically me just badgering them by email and telling them to, to give me a job. So <laughs> I, was, uh, I was very grateful in the end.
0: <laughs> the last time I mentioned Sam in the series was during the Australian Antarctic... Festival in Hobart, you had a couple of entries in the photographic competition, one of which took home first prize. Mm -hmm. Can you tell listeners the story behind that photograph and perhaps the one, the aerial shot of the iceberg? I think they're
1: both. Ah, sure. Yeah. Yeah, funnily enough, those two shots came about under sort of very different circumstances. And for me, it was quite meaningful because one sort of came about very much as a product of what I was doing with Sea Shepherd and the other came about as a product of uh, what I now do with, with quark expeditions. Um, the aerial iceberg shot uh, that's kind of become affectionately, affectionately known as the uh, the poached egg shot as well <laughs> now, um, was uh, a product of very sort of um, fortuitous circumstances I found myself in, uh, being the sort of designated Helicopter camera operator for um, Operation Nemesis in, in the Southern Ocean. Um, so, this kind of came at a time when the whaling fleet had written up um, the new iteration of their whaling program after being um, taken to court, uh, taken to the ICJ uh, in 2013/14, I believe it was, um, which very quickly quickly we sort of came to realise had been at least in part sort of designed to make the Sea Shepherd's job very difficult Um, so we spent a lot of time flying around looking for the whaling fleet Um, a lot of this was taking place um, towards the sort of cooperation sea Um, and so we spent yeah some pretty considerable amounts of time basically flying around vast ice fields and keeping our eyes peeled for uh, smokestacks, which presented me with a a bit of an opportunity for some um, unique angles (laughs) uh, of of the Antarctic and of icebergs in particular. So um, that particular image, uh, I really owe it to the helicopter pilot, really. Um, I sort of saw this particular iceberg and saw that it was particularly uh, photogenic and submitted a request on the spot um, (laughs) to, do a bit of a sort of brief loop around it uh, whilst we were on our, our search flight. Um, and Brent, the pilot, basically took it upon himself to to put the aircraft into a, a real sort of spiralling bank down on top of this uh, this iceberg with me on the low side, which really sort of is what affords that sort of formality to, to the shot, that sort of just pure top-down um, you know unfortunately in the, in the age of drones it sort of just resembles a, a drone shot which i think sort of detracts from the power a little bit but um yeah just sort of one of those one of those opportunities that, that came about uh and then the penguin image um very much a product of sort of our, our sort of daily routine uh, on a quark vessel um it was at uh, Mickelson Harbor at the south end of uh, Trinity Island on the Antarctic Peninsula. Um, and very much a kind of, you know, somewhat of a run of the mill excursion and Split Landing at Mickelson. Um, I was ashore doing my usual thing, helping people, instructing in uh, photographic discourse. and um, But just a particularly sort of photogenic day. It was Christmas Day. Um, Two. Uh, austral summers ago, um, and, uh, it was snowing, and it had been snowing all of the, the previous night, so quite a lot of sort of fresh snow on the ground, um, and, uh, I basically towards kind of the southern part of the island, there's a, a small beach, um, where gentoos like to, to come ashore, and, and there are a few of them that were sort of making their way up at this snow bank, uh, and... Basically, I uh, I just kind of lay down in the snow for a, a good sort of 20 or 30 minutes as these penguins are kind of coming ashore and, and waddling up the snowbank. And um, it just made for what I sort of observed as being a very sort of minimal, high-key shot. Um, and uh, at the time, yeah, I guess I was just after a sort of a penguin portrait sort of thing. So, um, yeah, I think that it kind of worked in the end, and I think... Um, the, the judges at the, the festival sort of appreciated the, the minimalism of, of the shot. Yeah. It is.
0: <clears throat> pardon me, it is a stunner, and uh, I'm sure I can link to an online version mm-hmm. for the for the show notes somewhere. The equipment that you're shooting with, can, mm-hmm. you, can you tell the listeners what your standard rig looks like?
1: Yeah, it's evolved a little bit over the last... Um, couple of years. Uh, for a long time, I was a very uh, avid uh, Canon shooter. Um, they're DSLRs uh, in particular, so um, I've had owned almost every iteration of the, the 5D series, um, and kind of putting on the front of that, usually a sort of mid-range zoom, like a 24 to 70, uh, and then a, a 100 to 400 uh, as well. Um, the last year or two that's changed a little bit as I've started sort of migrating towards a, a mirrorless uh, system instead. So primarily shooting uh, Sony cameras at the moment. And um, I saw, I trained in um, documentary practice mainly, so um, that does make me a little partial to, um, to sort of fixed focal lengths as well. And I'm now sort of using mostly... Um, 50mm prime lenses or an 85mm prime, um, some of which are manual focus only. Uh, and um, on top of that, um, I use a little bit of flash in my practice as well. Um, not not so much around wildlife, but um, again, sort of a, a little bit of a product with my journalists journalistic and sort of documentary uh, practice Um, but yeah I like to keep it keep it fairly simple Um, yeah particularly in wildlife photography you know you can see some uh, pretty elaborate setups getting around and I think a lot of the time it's especially on the Antarctic Peninsula it's it's sort of overkill you know usually there you're dealing with um, pinnipeds or uh, penguins or something that are uh, especially at certain times of the season more than happy to come within three or two or one feet of you so i I find a you know somewhere between a 50 millimeter and a and an 85 millimeter is often more than enough.
0: that migration to the mirrorless cameras is a a motif among the photographers i know is it Mm. is it a weight consideration or are there functionalities that you're finding
1: yeah i think part of it is is to do with weight um for me that was certainly uh, a factor, usually because I'm attempting to wield a, a camera and, and the tiller of a Zodiac at the same time. Um, on top of that, I, I think the companies, the camera manufacturers that have sort of heralded this uh, mirrorless revolution have um, put a lot of R&D into their, their senses, um, kind of in conjunction with that. Um, so. Uh, Certainly, um, the Sony Alpha series in in particular, um, switching to that series from, from say, a a Canon 5D, the DSLR equivalent, uh, gives you an extra, sort of, uh, a big resolution boost in the process. So, for example, when I moved from my 5D Mark IV to my uh, A7R, I went from 24 megapixels to 42 or something like that. So... Um, which means a lot to some people, means less to others, but um, I've certainly sort of found uh, the more megapixels the merrier to, to some extent.
0: <laughs> in in that role, in that industry, say you've had an eight or nine hour working day out on the boats in the water, how much time is then taken up with downloading and recharging and editing?
1: Yeah, it, uh, it can be... Um, a surprising amount of time. Um, I guess that probably changes sort of between photography guides, um, you know, a, a big sort of benefit of the job, and especially working for for Quark Expeditions, who are, who are very kind in the way they approach photography and um, allow us to sort of retain the rights to all, all our material and that sort of thing, so um, it means that I can be out there. Um, Making pictures that are going to appeal to the guests that we have on board and um, and that Quark can utilize for the for their needs, but I can also be shooting my own my own pictures, um, whatever they sort of look like at the time. So um, <clears throat> that sort of means a, a little bit of a spectrum of um, how much time I might spend at the end of each day. Um, you know, sometimes I haven't observed much that I'd like to uh, to sort of photograph myself, which means I'm as long as I'm fulfilling my uh, my role for Quark, it might mean an hour or two of, of editing in the evening and um, putting some images towards our, our Voyage slideshow or something like that. But uh, on other days, yeah, I will have filled a, a CF card of images that I'm personally very interested in as well. So then I'll be up until one or two in the morning kind of <laughs> staring at the laptop screen. But um, yeah, I you know it sort of changes as well sometimes i'm happy to just kind of dump them onto a hard drive and and deal with them later but a lot of the time i just can't can't help myself really (laughs) pardon me um
0: talking to and reading about the the almost symbiotic relationship between helicopter pilots and the videographers and camera people that they are charged with cutting around Mm. it sounds like there's a, a learning curve from both sides of that equation, did the helicopter pilot that you worked with through Sea Shepherd require much
1: hmm. training from you, or no? Um, yeah, I mean you're absolutely right. It's um, it, it is particularly that season I spent um, spending much more time in the helicopter was um, a very steep learning curve for me. I think for the for the pilot as well. Um, yeah, certainly there's this sort of. Uh, a real need for a very thorough sort of ongoing uh, communication uh, during during the flight, especially in that context where we're sort of you know we're doubling up on, on so many roles. Um, you can only kind of squeeze so many kilograms into a, a, a an r forty four, especially when, when flying in somewhat cold uh, temperatures. Um, so yeah, I was kind of doubling up on basically camera operator slash navigator role, and, and uh, Brent, our pilot, um, was a pilot, but he also had to be very sort of savvy, I guess, when it comes to thinking about um, what our requirements, our, our sort of needs were, um, but yeah, he was incredibly responsive to that, um, really sort of went out of his way to completely understand all sort of aspects of, a, of our production um so you know from those little things like uh you know can we fly around this iceberg once or twice <laughs> um to the times when we did find um you know in some cases the the factory the factory vessel of the whaling fleet where it's an absolute imperative that we nail a number of kind of shots um you know of the ship um, from various angles, and uh, and then sort of responding to whatever is happening on deck at the time, and um, it's some pretty technical flying that Brent had to execute, you know, in close range to this sort of uh, hulking leviathan of, of a vessel, uh, when the people uh, on board it aren't particularly happy with your presence either, um, so yeah, it was very much um, a pretty steep learning curve for everyone involved, but um, yeah, couldn't be more happy with uh, with how Brent facilitated it for us
0: and at the time of year that you're operating in those waters and not counting transits to and from the the area of interest how many days of flying are knocked out by adverse weather like days that you would want to
1: fly hmm um, yeah I'm not sure what the sort of uh, rate or the ratio would be um Certainly when we were around towards the cooperation sea, it it seemed a little more sort of, uh, the weather was a little more turbulent around there uh, on average. Um, Yeah, it it can kind of change pretty rapidly as well. And uh, it's not always just sort of wind that we're concerned about. It's often fog uh, as well. Um, And yeah, it can always be a little... Precarious. It's, it's difficult to illustrate, um, you know, to the listeners, but also to, to anyone really how difficult it is to see a ship from a helicopter when it would seem like it might be relatively simple, kind of looking for a ship on otherwise a sort of seemingly blank canvas. Um, but it's, it's surprisingly difficult, and it's, it sort of became illustrated to us when looking for the whaling fleet But also when we'd sort of reached the end of our uh, our search flight and we were looking to rendezvous with the Steve Owen again and we've got the exact coordinates of where the Steve Owen should be. (laughs) And as far as all our onboard GPSs are telling us, we're flying exactly towards those coordinates, Um, you know, and they're sort of telling us that we're 500 metres out, we're 300 metres out, 150 metres out, and we still can't see the ship. Um, And, you know, just because of light conditions or or ice or a combination of the two, um, it was really sort of surprisingly difficult. So we always had to be extremely careful with with the weather. Um, So, yeah, it was... um, We'd get to fly maybe, you know, once every... Maybe every second day, once every three days, something like that. But, um, yeah, certainly... Couple of times when um, we experienced the full force of uh, adverse weather, sort of creeping up on us as well.
0: <laughs> and another limiting factor for aviation in that context is the fuel. Did you have mm. sufficient fuel to to operate with, or were you starting to cut into the the last few drums?
1: Yeah, we certainly brought it brought it down to the wire. I think we pretty much uh, burnt through. Pretty much every liter of aviation fuel that we had <laughs> stored on board, um, pretty much because the the, uh, the amount of fuel we had sort of reflected the amount of hours that we were allowed to use the aircraft for, anyway. And I think we were just looking to really maximize the time we had in the air because it it basically was um, the key to any sort of success we were hoping for. And with that uh, with that campaign, um, I think it was really only took maybe four or five weeks into the campaign to really realise that, um, you know, these efforts they they had put in place um, were very much designed to make our, our job of finding the whaling fleet very, very difficult. <laughs> so it, it really sort of became uh, the, the aviation side of things, became a real focus uh, of the campaign for sure. <coughs> Pardon me, back to the,
0: the hardware of photography. Are there any special tricks or tips for keeping a camera operating in the in the temperatures that you were working in
1: yeah that's a it's a pretty common um question especially on the the quark vessels um where there's a real spectrum of camera hardware that people bring on on board with them we get some kind of semi-professionals that have weather sealed dslrs and and this sort of thing but then through to the other end um, sort of fairly rudimentary point and shoot cameras which don't fare nearly as well in, uh, in cold, snowy weather. Um, I, I mean, I'm gonna kind of preface this with saying I'm probably not the best person to ask this question because I'm notoriously hard on my equipment. <laughs> um, I, I always have used weather-sealed gear and I've tested the, that weather sealing to, uh, to its limit most of the time, but um, there's certainly some little tips and tricks you know, often one of the things that we're running into is um, lithium batteries ceasing to work because of the, the low temperatures that are, they're being exposed to. Um, so I often kind of suggest to people if their camera fits in some kind of um, pocket of, of their parker or something like that, or even if it's slightly larger, um, kind of inserting it between yourself and, and your parker uh, somehow that uh, that might serve to kind of keep the battery warm whilst it's inside the camera. Um, if you're fortunate enough to have <clears throat> several batteries with you, just kind of keeping those spares um, in a pocket, and you know, even if it's in in a spare glove or in a, a sock you're not using at the time, or um, if you put one of those chemical hand warmers in in there with them, um, that's always a good thing. Um, and then on top of that, it's really just about keeping, well, really keeping salt off off the cameras Um, you know they're fairly happy to um, get some some uh, precipitation on them and uh, as long as you kind of wipe it off at semi-regular intervals it's fine but uh, it's kind of when you've been out there all day and there's a bit of kind of salt being being blown around and and that sort of thing and during the course of a season yeah you've got to make sure you're doing those sort of regular more thorough thorough cleans of of equipment
0: just before we finish up, are there websites or s- uh, web addresses that you'd like the listeners to visit? Sure,
1: yeah. Um, uh, Seashepherd.org <laughs> uh, is a good one. Um, uh, as far as my personal work, uh, uh is where I'm often sort of publishing work from, from the Antarctic. Um, but uh, more regularly is probably probably Instagram as well. Uh, where I'm also Sam Edmonds' photo. Um, but yeah, I mean, Sea Shepherd is a good good one to turn to as well. They're sort of social media channels, and they're, uh, they're engaging themselves in some some very interesting uh, uh, work at the moment, focusing much more on uh, this issue of overfishing in, in Africa. Um, so some interesting things going on for the organization as they sort of slowly turn their gaze away from From whaling um, and towards some different issues so well worth having having a read about
0: Sam Edmonds thank you so much for your time
1: Thank you so much thank you
0: ah yeah now taking the piss and slinging shit. In the early days of Antarctic exploration, shipboard accommodations re tended to be a seat over the bullocks, with all wastes falling direct into the sea. I noted that some crews on some ships in really poor weather turned to the bilgers as their sewer of last resort, but the resulting outbreaks of faecal oral diseases made the phrasing correct in more ways than one, with many crew dying of diseases we can keep under control if people aren't shitting in their own nests. Once people started going and staying ashore in Antarctica, the plumbing remained simple and sound so long as people were able to reach the facilities, notable exceptions being Campbell's troglodytes at Inexpressible Island in 1913, whose miserable winter in the snow cave featured many uncontrolled evacuations while in the sleeping bags. A hole in the snow with a seat over the top served most small, short-term land bases well with sanitation and odours taken care of by low temperatures. This became problematic by the time winter overteams reached the size of Birds Party at Little America, wherein the volume of ship produced generated its own secondary problems unique to very cold places. The turds froze so quickly that nothing that went into the pits settled under its own weight and fascinating and disgusting tertsecals grew like leafless aphotic trees, requiring weekly smashing apart by those who lost the weekly poker tournament, reaching into the pits with a task dedicated pry bar to prevent the excremental structures reaching the seat and rendering the facilities useless. I visited Base W, a late 1950s era Falkland Islands Dependency Survey base on Detai Island in early 2018. As far as I can judge, the toilet facilities at the hut simply let out onto the ground below. Raised on concrete piles, the hut held a fair leeway before the shit of even a dire winter of blizzards and the trots could come close to encroaching on the seats. As it was, the base only served for a brief period, sea ice conditions around the Thai island making resupply difficult and hazardous, and the midden left behind by the Fids peppered with vintage toothpaste tubes and gum wrappers of the era, is slowly heading downhill under its own weight during the summer thaws, and will eventually drop into the sea. I did think to start a volunteer clean-up project, but, being more than 50 years old, it's probably heritage-listed shit at this point. During the International Geophysical Year, many coastal research stations sprang up and as has been the human habit for pretty much the whole of human history, the sea seemed a pretty good place to put the wastes, because you can't see it once the tides cycled a couple of times. From 1957 to, in some cases, the present, Antarctic coastal waters received untreated human effluent. At some bases, pipelines ran into the water down which flushing toilets could empty directly. In others, This meant steel drums placed outside the accommodation block vestibules, fed by a pipe through the wall and capped with a funnel, for the residents to piss into. Solids often went into plastic liners inside camping toilets. At remote sites, the plastic bags and drums of piss were left in place, some veterans recording instructions from superiors that they should throw their bags onto the sea ice or as far into the landscape as their arm allowed. At many larger stations, the drums and baggies were towed out onto seasonal sea ice, and disappeared with the summer breakout. Problem solved once and for all. I said once and for all! Some bases burnt their shit, the most efficient approach being to set empty fuel drums under the straining post. These were lined with a crib of kindling and barbecue briquettes. Contributors were invited to first piss in a dedicated piss drum before using the shitter, thereby preventing the flammables getting too damp to burn. The drums were switched out before the load overwhelmed the par at the bottom, and the whole ensemble was set alight with the aid of some flammable liquids. The resulting ash, while still unpleasant to deal with for the poor sucker on shit-can duty, was less of a health hazard and a far smaller volume than before. I don't like to think of the smell the whole lot gave off, and while I've stood around a number of blazing 44-gallon drum fires, that stands as one instance where I think I'd rather just endure the cold. I've met people whose research in Antarctica focused solely on the impact human effluent had on the local benthic faunal assemblages that it was inflicted on. Some people argue that the shit generated by 50 or so humans for a handful of decades at any given station pales into insignificance when compared with that generated by thousands of elephant seals over thousands of years. But even if the oxygen demand of human effluent all dumped in one spot didn't make that gambit fallacious based on the category error it comprises, that's an argument from scale, rather rather than a sound argumentative lever by which to null concerns about a problem that didn't exist before we turned up. And nations establishing bases today tend to grow long and loud about the low or zero emissions they achieve through composting sewage systems and logistics solutions to transport the resulting sludge back home. I'm pretty sure I'm not just making shit up when I recount that I was on station at Scott Base when a composting sewage plant crapped out, its bacterial flora killed off by a heating failure or some similar catastrophic environmental disaster for bacteria. And Base staff were dispatched to the neighbours at McMurdo too, in the words of one plant operator, borrow a cup of poo from the American's treatment plant to kickstart the system once more. It's not that the New Zealanders weren't making their own poo, but I suspect there's poo and then there's high-octane, bacterially activated poo. I know there's listeners working among the Scott-based engineering staff and they can correct me if I've gone aglay, which I gang-aft. The story was good for a laugh at the time, either way. A major shift in national environmental policies regarding Antarctica is slated for some ice coffee attention as the series reaches the 1980s, but the short version is Greenpeace turned up at Cape Evans in the 1980s, built a base, ran it for a couple of winters, then removed all trace of it. Shaming national research bodies into doing a better job of valuing the environment, those same research bodies put so much effort into telling the rest of the world they should value, because they are pristine and unique. Some bases still burn their shit. Some still pump it into the sea. But a lot have cleaned up their act significantly. McMurdo Station, the largest human presence in Antarctica, features a treatment plant, and the resulting dewatered solids are shipped back to the USA on the cargo vessels into McMurdo Sound each summer to keep the United States Antarctic research programs operational. Once retroed to CONUS in this way, it's repurposed as Trump policy documents and the alt-right rhetoric trying to rationalise same. Different national bodies have different flagging systems, but the general rules I've picked up on is black flags mean stay clear of this crevasse or crack in the sea ice or alien spacecraft we don't want you to know about, red flags mark a safe route, and yellow flags mark a peace site. The shift in internationally acceptable practices have made peeing anywhere other than on sea ice somewhat gauche and the pee flag is falling into the past. Diane Patterson, writing in The Ice Beneath My Feet, does recount people peeing on the base of newly installed route marking flags, the quick frozen urine helping ensure the flag stayed put, but I don't know if this is still practiced. Ostensibly it saves water for the hard put traverse crew marking the trail. But since you have to drink large volumes to maintain piss productivity as you progress, this must be more about scent marking this might be more about scent marking territory and knockabout field team bonhomie than it is a strict efficiency measure. Inland stations face all the same problems as coastal ones face, with the added complication that they can't simply pump their shit into the sea, and usually don't have enough fuel spare for the luxury of burning it at inland stations, the cold hole solution remains king. Barrels and funnels are fine for taking the piss from a single accommodation building, and I understand such barrels were given a secondary use to line the runway at Pole, but large crews require large sewage solutions. At Pole, or Scott Amundsen Station, depending on how much of a finger you want to sound like, fresh water is sourced from subsurface ice using a rod well. A portmanteau word arising from the name of the system's designer, US Army Engineer, Roel Rodriguez, who employed the system in Greenland in 1960, and the word well. Rodriguez's system pushes heated water steam was used in Greenland, but the ice there was warmer, into a drilled hole. The heat melts the water at the bottom of the hole, and the cool water, comprising the water originally sent down and the newly liquid water it melted, is drawn out, leaving a teardrop-shaped vesicle in the ice into which more hot water is pumped. Rodwell systems work well enough, producing a roughly 30 to 1 ratio of water brought to the surface per unit of fuel used. And the system hasn't changed much in the 60 years since its invention, but it's not an infinite source of water. Eventually, the cavity in the ice becomes too large for the process to work efficiently, and the operators have to up stumps and move the rig to a new site. The cavity then becomes the storage space for the Polys' wastes, referred to locally as the sewage bulb. This is also not an indefinite solution, and the first such bulb filled up and began to spill shit into the subsurface utility corridor, known locally as the Utilidor, that the Polys used to house their cable runs and plumbing engineers and plant operators to the rescue. New tunnels, new bulb, same old shit. Plumbers earn the large sums they charge for their services, and never more so than in places where not only do pipes block up, but the contents behind the blockage then freezes solid and requires careful thawing so as to not cause ruptures, spills or explosions of flammable gases. As Nick Johnson highlights in Big Dead Place, Using retired Rodwell bulbs is only a temporary measure in another sense, as the ice is on the move, even at the pole. The big brown boluses will eventually reach the coast, and I, for one, really don't want to be there when they do. Glacial carvings can be frightening enough when they're only made of water. The thought of drowning under a literal wave of shite, or bleeding out from injuries received from a lump of frozen shit shrapnel, Put a lot of other unpleasant ways to die into perspective. Taking care of business out in the field has seen some ingenious innovations. The simplest is keeping the floor cloth separate to the tent in a lining. Since the 1980s, most hiking and static camping tents for use in temperate regions have featured integrated floors, but in the cold it serves you well to be able to peel up a corner of the floor cloth pee or poo in a shallow hole dug into the snow, replace the floor cloth and return to the sleeping bag. No dressing in to go out, and no flurries of unwanted blizzardry inflicted on tentmates as you wrestle with the doorway. Again, the example set by Greenpeace saw field parties lift their game, and now people use sealable plastic drums and transferable seats to receive, hold and transport a field camp's wastes back to base. Such units usually feature amusing graffiti on their exterior and are usually called something rather droll. Being portable, they can also be placed in amusing or picturesque sites, and some friends recount almost giving themselves frostbites in sensitive parts because they found themselves so much taken by the beauty of the view they faced as they abluted. The general concept today is that you only take photographs and leave only footprints and this includes not writing your name in the snow. Piss is generally expected to return to base with you, and personal pee bottles are part of the field kit assigned to field party members. People tend to sleep with these inside their sleeping bags so they don't have to wrestle in and out of their bedclothes to make use of it, or even get an arm free to reach for it. The pee bottle also stays in the sleeping bag lid screwed on firmly, to prevent the contents freezing, which could render the unit useless if the contents were in contact with the lid as the piss solidified, perhaps later leading to the owner spending a miserable few hours thawing out the bottle of icy piss with their own body warmth and nursing a full bladder in a sessile but tense race against time and thermodynamics. I don't know if the lofty status of the word limerick should be sullied by its application to the following doggerel, but it's the only poem I've come across about Antarctic ablutions and so warrants inclusion in the episode. Ode to a Pea Bottle It was three o'clock this morning and I had to go, but the thermometer said it was twenty below. So I reached for my bottle and relieved at full throttle, thus avoiding a very brisk venture in the snow. The scan isn't great, but there is truth, and therefore a skerrick of beauty, in this. While it's easy for fellows to make use of the piss bottle, having been fitted with a fitting that serves well enough in spite of lacking a bayonet socket or threaded rim or similarly sound sealing mechanism, women need an additional plastic piece called a funnel in order to take the piss effectively. While it makes sense if you think about it for ten seconds, which most men don't, I first learnt this because I saw one go skittering across the sea ice from the lee side of a hagland during a break in a transit to Cape Royd's The chagrined former owner who lost their funnel to the wind had to turn to their roommate to borrow a replacement in order to finish their task. At the time I thought this was an unfortunate one-off incident, but reading Diana Patterson's The Ice Beneath My Feet I came to suspect that a systematic design flaw makes it easy for the funnel to break its lock with a bottleneck and I think there's an opportunity for some engineer to make improvements in the system. Gaffer tape and cable ties can solve most problems, but with something as fundamentally human as taking a piss, the problems shouldn't exist at that basic a level. Correspondence at the I've Been to Antarctica Facebook page have given me insights into electrically powered incinerator toilet units that can reduce human waste to ashes with exciting accompanying noises to waterless composting toilets which require the occasional addition of peat moss to remain in good piss-taking fettle and to something out at Willie's Field called the super shitter that I'm not entirely sure I comprehend and which I don't feel especially inclined to dig further into I shouldn't be surprised but I'm finding enough historical interest and interesting anecdotes that sewage and sewerage in Antarctica could easily become its own book a less tasteful bookend to Jason Anthony's hoosh. But I don't think I'll follow up all the leads I've been given, as I don't think anyone would buy it. Everybody poops. I wish it wasn't so, but it's part of our shared humanity. That people can ignore that aspect of our biology, while waxing lyrical praising our species as the highest achievement of their deity of choice, goes to show how powerful a mechanism cognitive dissonance can be, It took a while, but it seems Antarcticans, because of necessity and through ingenuity, have got that shit in hand. While last episode I was waxing grateful for the boost in listeners the series received in March due to one of my stories featuring on the Moth Radio Hour, the number of people binge-listening to the series has seen the monthly download figures lurch dangerously close to the point advertisers start considering paying podcasters to feature advertisements in their episodes. Some podcasters can do this with humour and alarm. I'm looking at you, puzzle in a thunderstorm productions. And others read the assigned copy like a hostage reading a prepared statement to camera. I'm looking at you, Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. I don't want to face the effort of the former or bore you stupid with the latter, so I won't be seeking to bring advertising into ice coffee. But here's the trick. I like the way money can be exchanged for goods and services. I like coffee and chocolate, and would crawl over a mountain of my own grandmothers to get them. And advertising dollars would negate that step in the process. So I'm eager that I not be placed in a position wherein my hosting service even suggests that I might look to start dialogue with advertisers. And the easiest way to do that is to not show up on their radar by having lots of listeners. So here's my request, my call to non-action. Please don't tell your friends about iced coffee. I know this runs near parallel to Chuck Paulinick's literary mechanism by which his character, Tyler Durden, guaranteed people would spread the news about Fight Club. But I seriously want you to not spread the word about iced coffee. Save me from myself, and yourself, from listening to me trying to advertise and not sound like the advertiser that would make me. I'm not up to that task, and not interested in chasing the money but I also suspect I'm not strong-willed enough to hold to my principles if the money comes looking for me. Does that make those principles something less than principles? Probably yes, but if the upshot is no ads in the episodes, the actual mechanisms at play are irrelevant as far as your ears are concerned. Saying hello to Lisa, who's mad as a cut snake, but all the more fun for it. And take special care of those ruby slippers. I want those most of all.